Uh, I have a couple of thoughts. One is I love the God-honoring, gospel-centered intentionality and passion of Benji and the youth leaders. Give them a hand. Yeah. Look, we are, we are commanded to invest our time, talent, energies, and truth and treasure into the next generation. And I'm thankful to be a part of a church that does that and takes that seriously. Secondly, I thought, I do not want to be 18 again. Anybody else? <laughs> now, here's the deal. I want to be 18 and know what I know now. Because I was pretty stupid at 18. I know that's shocking for y'all with the level of maturity that I bring as your pastor. So, man, turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, starting with verse 8 through 16. As we continue our series called Run for Your Life. In the midst of... You and I live in, in this broken, sinful world, which includes the struggle with our own sinfulness and the struggle and implications of other sin against us. It is very easy, as you know, to become discouraged, cynical, or even lose hope altogether, is it not? I mean, it's a day by day to keep our heads above the water with a million different circumstances and difficulties flooding our lives. So here's the question. How do we live faithfully, faithfully to Christ until we see him face to face? That's the question that we're asking and answering. And I was reminded of the answer of a story that I read years ago in a great book. I cannot recommend it enough. It's titled Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Anybody read that? Yeah. It's phenomenal. So it's a dissertation, if you would, a, a, a poor man, dumb man's dissertation on heaven, meaning I can read it and understand it. But in that, there was a story in the introduction that came to mind this week. In 1952, a gal by the name of Floris Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off of Catalina Island to swim. Her goal was to swim to the mainland of California. Now, she had in her resume, she was the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. So she was no rookie. This was not new to her. And now the weather was foggy and cold and she swam for 15 hours straight. But eventually she stopped swimming and she gave up and they pulled her out of the water and placed her into a boat to recover. And while warming up in the boat, someone in the boat told her that you were so close, only 400 yards away. The next day in a news conference, she said these words, all if I could see, if all I could, I'm sorry, let me start over. She said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Think about those words. I think I could have seen the shore. If I could have, I would have made it. I think the whole book of Hebrews, and particularly chapter 11, is trying to help Christ's followers see the shore through the fog of life. And that shore 
the writer of Hebrews has told us, is Jesus, that he is superior to all. And being with him for eternity, and eventually the new heavens and the new earth is the shore. And here's the reality for all of us, the clear picture we've been talking about drawing near, drawing near to Christ, seeing him clearly gives us great strength to live for him faithfully to the end. Apostle Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, see the things that are above. See the shore where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above. Set your minds on the shore, not on the things that are on the earth or not on the fog. One of my favorite all-time quotes this is by Jonathan Edwards. He says, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. So this morning we get to learn from one who set his mind and heart on things above. His name, Abraham, the one who Paul in Romans 4 calls the father of all who believe. Now, in light of that, it's not surprising that Abraham, out of every person mentioned in chapter 11, gets the most ink as a person in the hall of faith. And so we're going to see this morning why he was enshrined in the hall of faith. That's one question, but also how you and I can be enshrined in the hall of faith as we look at his life. So let me read, first of all, verses 8 and 10. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So the first thing we notice right off the bat and we're looking at these four things, the first one being live as a stranger. It says, by faith, Abe, I'll call him Abe sometimes for short. He likes that. We had a chat about it. <laughs> by faith, Abe obeyed when he was called. Literally, that reads, while Abe was being called, he obeyed. Abe's response was immediate to God's call. No hesitation. And we have to get clear, what was that call? The call was twofold. The first, it was to leave his old way of life and way of life. Now, if that doesn't sound familiar to you, as a Christ follower, I, 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 don't, I can't know if I can help you. When we come to Christ, we don't even know this is necessarily the call at first, but it is the call for every Christ follower to leave our old way of life in our way of life. Genesis 12 records that for us. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, that was his name before it was changed to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Leave it all. All that you know, all that you hold dear, all that you, uh, you get your worth and value and significance and security from, leave it. That's the call. Secondly, the second part of the call was a call to an inheritance. 
And again, Genesis 12 lays that out. It says, the inheritance is a land that I will show you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So to summarize this call was to leave and go, and I'm going to do something great in you and through you. Folks, that is the Christian's call when a person comes to Christ. Leave your old way of life. I'm going to do something great in you and through you. Now, I want to give us a little bit of warning here because we could read that and think that Abraham is the hero of, he is a hero of the faith, but it doesn't make him the hero of his story of faith. God is clearly, this is important context, God is clearly the hero of his story and my story and your story. Because when Abe was called or saved, we need to understand that it was by the sovereign grace of the Lord Jesus and there was nothing that he brought to the table. The Bible makes it very clear that God is the one who took the initiative with Abraham to bestow grace upon grace upon his life. Joshua 24, if you will mark that down and read it later, is given, if you would, a redemptive retelling of the story of Israel, of its redemptive history. And in that, he talks about Abraham, the father of our faith, the, the first one that was called. And he says that his dad was named Terah, and their family were idol worshipers. Abraham lived in Ur, or modern-day Iraq. He was a pagan. He was from a pagan city, and he was a descendant and had a long lineage of pagans and idol worshipers. It wasn't like Abe was walking around as the most righteous man on the face of the earth, and God said, there's my man. No, he saved Abraham just like he saves us. Imagine with me, I had a little, been talking about a few weeks, uh, sanctified imagination. And for some reason, this thought came in my brain this week. You know, when John Newton wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, and Abraham's in heaven as the great cloud of witnesses, and he hears it for the first time, Abraham would relate to that. Yes, that's what happened to me. That's how we are to read this text. Abraham was not looking for God. He was on his way to worship trees and bugs and snakes and alligators. And God called him with his grace. So what happened from that call is that God birthed faith in him. And the result of that faith that was birthed in him from that salvific call is he went out not knowing where he was going. Here's what you and I need to get really clear, and that is faith and obedience go together like peanut butter and jelly. A.W. Pink says, faith leads to obedience, and obedience is the evidence of faith. There is a radical nature of biblical faith. And here's why. Because it is, as Monty said last week, a response to the words of God. 
It's just not thoughts, although it starts with thoughts. It's just not humming as incense play, I have faith. It is a direct response from the word of God that then turns into a life that lives for things unseen. That's the way it works. It's a change of thinking and action. So when you and I come to Christ, here's part of that call. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross. If you want to find your life, lose your life for Christ, right? There's a, there's a hard, radical call. The problem is, I don't know about you, but I didn't know what all that meant. Did you? <laughs> I didn't know the pain it would take to walk this journey of faith. I didn't know the things I would have to go through. I didn't know how sinful I was. I didn't know how much unawareness I had about my own heart and about the lives of others. I mean, I just didn't know what that entailed. I knew I was tired enough of trusting in me. And I'd come to a point that I could now see. <laughs> and I said, Lord Jesus, I need you. Reminds me of The Pilgrim's Progress, a great classical book that is a must-read for every Christian. Speaking of Christian, he was the main character in the book, Christian. Remember, he was to leave the city of destruction once he got God's call to go to the celestial city. But he first had to get through, if you remember, the wicked gate, the swamp of despair under the weight of his own sins. Anybody ever felt that on your journey of faith? He had to fight Apollyon. Apollyon was part dragon, bear, fish, and human that represented the values of the world, flesh, and devil. Anybody feel that fight? He got locked in Doubting Castle. Anybody ever had doubts? The journey, that was the journey. He had no idea what the journey would unfold, but he knew the destination of the journey, which was the celestial city. So he had a long obedience in the same direction. And then in verse 9, it says he went to live as a foreigner in the land of promise. Other versions say he went to dwell as an alien or a stranger. Here's the picture. God calls Abe to go and inherit a land that he would not own or possess, but would live in it as a stranger. Put it another way, he had the promise or the title deed by faith, but never in his life attained possession of the land. Abe, this new believer, after being called to God by his grace, was living in the already and not yet. Do you feel that tension? The same for us. You and I have the promise of eternity and all that comes with it, but between this life and the life to come, you and I are to live as strangers here. This world is not our home. Prove my point. In Genesis 23, Sarah dies and asks she and Abe, are living as strangers in the land. God had promised to give them the land. But when she dies, Abraham has no land. He owns nothing. 
He has to literally buy a cave to put his wife in. And by the time Abraham died himself, he still only owned that burial plot for Sarah. I feel the tension because it's talking about walking by faith and not by sight. God had promised so much to Abraham and Sarah, yet at this point he had given so little. I think it's a great reminder to us that when God speaks, and he speaks a lot, and he speaks clearly, and he speaks boldly of our spiritual inheritance in Christ, we need to come to this realization that so little of it happens this side of heaven. Abe's and Sarah's faith, just like ours, was and needs to be fueled by the future promises of God. Reminder, the here and now is as bad as it gets for us. It will get no worse. John Stott put it this way. He said, our mindset towards success, possessions, and purpose in life is radically different than the natives because they're hope centers in this life only, and our treasure is in heaven. The text mentions the patriarchs, the three names, Abe. And then you have Isaac, who was Abraham's son. And then you have Jacob, that was the son of Isaac. It says they all lived as strangers. Not, not at the same time, obviously, but they all lived like that. They all lived in tents in no, as nomads in the land of promise. And the question we ask is, why were they content to live as tent, content, how about that, to live as tent dwellers with no stability and no security. You and I should want to know the answer to that question because to live as a stranger is to live like that, and we got to know why we can live content here as a stranger. Verse 10 tells us, For he, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. They all knew with certainty and confidence that Cana, the land they were promised, was not their ultimate prize. They understood, if you would, that the real estate of Cana was pointing to something greater, a spiritual inheritance. Here's how Peter puts it, 1 Peter 2. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. <laughs> this earth is not our home. And I thought about, I got to give the folks, I got to give you some practical examples of what it means to live like as a stranger. And, and here's the deal. There's too many. There's too many for me to give you because it's not like, a, B, C, one, two, three. It's a new way of thinking. It's a new way of living. It's a new way of feeling. It's a worldview. It's a passion. It's a purpose. It's, it's, it's all-encompassing. So I said, how can I help the folks at Fellowship Bible Church? Here's what I want you to do. 
Open up 1 Peter. Read chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And from those five chapters, you will grasp what does it mean to live like, think like, feel like, be like, behave like a stranger in this world? It's glorious. As I read it, this tears ran down my face. I said, that's it. And I can't describe five chapters to you. Monty won't give me enough time. It's his fault. Man, please do that. Secondly, trust in the promises. Trust in the promises of God. Let's read verses 11 and 12. It says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, speaking of Abraham, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So just to be clear, God's promise to Abe and Sarah, his wife, was to inherit the land and that the land would be filled with their descendants. As many as the stars in the sky, as many as the grains of sand on the beach. That was the promise. The problem, and there is a problem. There are three huge problems. One is Sarah is barren. She has never been able to have a child. Secondly, she's already gone through menopause. She's too old. So she's barren, she's too old, and the text just hammers Abe. Abe is so old, he can't reproduce. Can you imagine being an old man, somebody saying, you're as good as dead? It doesn't work anymore for Abe. It's the best way I can put it. You got to feel that tension because the entire weight of God's covenant promise came down to one requirement, that Abraham and Sarah would have a son in which the lineage of the Lord Jesus would run through. Then we come to verse 11. I didn't know how to navigate this, so I'm going to do as quick as possible because in verse 11 we have a little bit of an interpretive problem. Okay, It's too much for me to go into all of it, but let me summarize for you just for clarity. The ESV, the NAS, and the New King James Version think Sarah is the subject of verse 11, and therefore, it's Sarah's faith they're talking about. The NET and the NAB and the NIV say Abe is the subject, therefore, it's his faith they're talking about. For example, the NAB, New American Bible Translation, puts it this way. By faith, he received power to generate, even though he was past the normal age, and Sarah herself was sterile, for he thought that the one who had made the promise was trustworthy. So how do we know? The vast majority of people that I read, seven or eight folks, says it's Abraham's faith. I think I agree with them. This is not heretical in any nature, if you want to believe it, Sarah, but I want to just show you how we got there. In Genesis, if you remember, when Sarah is told that she and Abe are going to have a child, what was her response? <laughs> yeah, right, God. 
You are nutty as a fruitcake. That's what she said in Hebrew, obviously. And, and so that's one reason her response was not a response of faith. And then secondly, in verse 8 and 9 and 10 and again in 12, Abraham is the subject of faith. And so in light of that, I don't think it jumps to Sarah. It's him straight through that. Lastly, there's a, the phrase receive power to conceive, I think for me was the kicker, is literally put like this, receive power to establish seed. It is a Greek idiom, that little phrase, receive power to establish seed, that is used tons in Greek outside of the New Testament, and every single time it's used, it's used to describe a male and never a female. F.F. Bruce translates this verse like this. By faith, even though Sarah was barren, he, Abe, received power to establish seed. So, this takes no disrespect to Sarah. She was a great woman and an Old Testament saint. So, in light of that, just keep moving. Verse 11 is a laughable promise. A laughable promise. Remember, in the long marriage of Abraham and Sarah, he was 75 when he got called, so they've been married a long time. They've never been able to have a child. She's beyond childbearing years, and Abe is not able to make babies. So as Sarah heard these words, I said she laughed. Here's a picture of what's going on in Genesis 15, 2 through 6. It says, But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Abraham is trying to use his adopted son, who is like a son to him. He has no children. God, let me help you out here. Got a suggestion. You know, Sarah's old. I'm old. Things don't work. I got my man here. Through him, he can, like, be my son. God brought him outside and said, no, God said, this man shall not be your heir, your only son. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven, Abraham, number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And it says, here it is. And Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. So I do find it ironic that Abraham is being human. He's not a perfect picture of faith. He's trying to help God out in a crisis. Anybody else ever done that? We'll get to that in a minute. Trying to offer up his adopted son. And God responds with, I don't need your help. Trust my promises, period. The ironic thing is Sarah also tries to help God out. Lord, help us from helping God out. She says, okay, Abe, it's going to be through your body. We hear that, that the promised child is fulfilled. So I can't have a child. So why don't you, Abraham, go into my Egyptian servant, Hagar, and have a child with her? Oh, okay. So what happens? They have Ishmael. 
Abraham is 100, Sarah is 90, and the promise to Abraham and Sarah from God is 100% contrary to the facts. They tried to help God out, God shut them down, and he put them in a position that required faith in the impossible. Abraham's response after God corrected him was this. He considered him faithful who had promised. I will believe what God said that he will do. Now, I love turkey hunting. Most of you know that. And recently, I took a guy hunting who had never been turkey hunting and didn't have much experience. And I told him to come over to the house beforehand a day or two before, I explained to him very clearly all the things about turkey hunting, gave him some camouflage. And in that, I said, when you aim at a turkey, you must aim one inch below where the feathers meet the neck. He has a long neck, right? See? And that's where you aim to get a clean shot. So I took him out. You know me. I called one in. He gobbled. We're moving up and slipping behind this big island of trees, and we're standing up, and he's gobbling around the other side in the field. I'm clucking. And all of a sudden, I see two big old gobblers, beards a-swinging, walking left to right. There they are. We're still standing up. I said, shoot them. And we're camoed. We haven't moved. They don't even know we're there. They're just looking for Miss Hen. Right? They're looking to reproduce. He said, shoot them now? I said, yeah. He takes my gun, who has a red dot sight on it, that's perfectly tuned in, and at 40 yards in the clear, he shoots, and the turkey thought it thundered. He missed so bad. that The turkey just sort of, hey, it's thundering out here. And then he looked at me and said, I missed. I was like, inside, outside, I was like, it's okay. Inside, I was going, no kidding, Sherlock, right? <laughs> and I said, shoot him, shoot again, shoot again. I was trying to be the nice pastor, right? <laughs> shoot again. And by that time, the bird was gone. I asked him in the follow-up conversation, what, 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 what were you aiming at? And he said, well, I was aiming at his eyeball because I didn't want to ruin the meat. <laughs> My follow-up question was, what did I tell you to aim at? <laughs> he said, where the feathers meet the skin on the neck. I said, trust. What I want to say is trust in Jeff. <laughs> right? <laughs> he wanted to help me out. Like he wanted to. I said, you can't have no meat if you don't kill him. Man, we, it is so intuitive for us to want to help God out. Look at his promises. Does it really mean that? Can it mean that? Is it really true? Monty said it beautiful. Trust in the word. Trust in his promises. Verse 12 describes it like this. From one man who was as good as dead, Isaac is born, and from Isaac... The hundreds of millions of Christ followers, including us, as many as the stars of heaven and grains on the sand. Note, though, Abe's life wasn't perfect. I said that. Twice he told Sarah to lie about who she was because he was afraid. Tell him, you're my sister, not my wife. 
we see him yield to Sarah's suggestion about Hagar, but there's no doubt at the end of the day, Abraham trusted faithfully in the promises of God. Those promises are phenomenal. They are endless. Yes, your sins are forgiven. Trust in that. Jesus raised from the dead. His Holy Spirit indwells us. He is at work in you. He wastes no circumstance in your life. He loves you in spite of you. He will bring you home. He will return. You and I need, he tells us, Benji said it, the body of Christ around us as a means of grace. Surrender to him and his promises. He doesn't need any help at all. And then live like it's true. Thirdly, there is a seek and desire your real home. I'm going to read verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, <clears throat> excuse me, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land, from which they had gone out, they would have gone, would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So here the writers referring to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That as they lived, they saw the promises afar with an eye of biblical faith or with evidence of things not seen, and this present world was not their true home. Verse 14 made it very clear they are seeking a homeland. They are seeking something that cannot be found in this life. C.S. Lewis famously puts it this way. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy. Anybody had those desires? Yes. The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. The writer of Hebrews wants to make it clear to his audience that true joy, true life is not in this life, but in the life to come in verse 15. 15 is the evidence that that's what he's driving at. Verse 15 tells us, the idea is if all they wanted was a happy life down here, they could have taken their riches, they could have settled in, could have cashed in their chips and lived like the world by going back to Ur or modern day Iraq where they came from. Now we know the audience in Hebrews is doing what? They're wanting to go back to Judaism, to a system that had been distorted in some ways to make a system of works. And the evidence is, no, they're seeking another world. They are faith. Biblical faith is always moving forward toward the celestial city, not going back and settling. In some ways, the writer is throwing cold water on the spiritual faces of these Hebrew Christians who are tempted to go back and he is saying to them, be like the patriarchs, march forward, march on. Desiring and seeking that celestial city, if you would, 
this new home that God created calls attention to God's worth. The great battle, I want to be clear here, for faith is not at the level of behavior. It is at the level of desire. What you and I desire, we will chase after. And what we chase after, we will become like. And then our behavior will reflect what we have become. The writer is telling us, chase after the Lord Jesus in eternity and your life to come and you will become like the Lord Jesus. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 3. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait <laughs> for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So the promises of God in Christ are our real home, and these promises have begun to shape as a whole how we think, how we live, how we feel. John Piper again says, faith considers this world and what it offers then faith considers the promises of God and what it offers, and biblical faith chooses the latter over the former. And lastly, man, I just think it's the so what, verse 16b. God obviously has prepared a city for his people, and God is not, it says, ashamed to be called their God. These folks who live for eternity, the reward was that God, when they stood in front of him, he said, I am not to, I'm not ashamed to be called the God of Jeff Patton. That's powerful stuff. Live by faith. That's our reward. That's the shore. That's what we're swimming to. That's what clears the fog. But you can't know the promises of God if you don't know his word. <laughs> the shore gets foggy and stays foggy. I love that. Put your name in there. I'm not ashamed to be called the God of and put your name because they have lived by faith. Take a minute and ask the question, so what, this morning? Jesus, we come to you this morning. We pray as we, 
as we walk with you, you would help us to live like a stranger. This world is not our home. Pray you would help us trust in your promises no matter no matter the circumstances. Pray you would do a sweet work in us to seek you and desire you above all else and therefore to chase hard after you. And Lord, let us see the shoreline. The reward is coming. You are not ashamed to be our God. Faithful. Faithful. We all have to do this in different ways, but it's all this we're all swimming toward the same shore. Do a sweet work in us. We love you and we ask that in Christ's name. Everyone said, Amen.